National Archives podcast series. Placing your Irish ancestors in the National Archives in England. It's not the place you'd expect to be tracing your Irish ancestors, and it certainly isn't the place where you'd start tracing your Irish ancestors in most cases. But you'd be surprised how much material there is in the National Archives at Kew. The National Archives of? Where exactly? It's a good question. Um, it's called the National Archives and not the National Archives of England. Sometimes the National Archives of Wales as well. And sometimes we are the National Archives of the United Kingdom, which sometimes included Ireland, whether Ireland liked it or not. Now, the records for Irish genealogy in the National Archives come in a number of varieties. Some of them are obviously Irish, because they've got Irish in the title. Some are in general series that just happen to include lots and lots of Irish entries. And something that I won't be dealing with today, but I have to mention, is one set of records that looks as though it's Irish, but isn't. Um, just for those of you who care, those are the Irish Tontine records. They're wonderful records, lots of births, marriage and death evidence in there, but slight drawback is that not many of the people in it are Irish, so useful for somebody, but not necessarily the Irish among us. I'm just going to take you through some of these records fairly briefly, because there's a lot of it. First of all, the records with Irish content. And these are records of the armed forces. There's an awful lot of Irish men and women uh, in the armed forces. And there are other services, by which I mean things like the Merchant Navy and Customs and Excise, Coast Guards, that sort of thing. Home Office has a lot of records. Home Office has a lot of records on all manner of subjects. All human life really is there. Everything that anybody wrote a bad-tempered letter to the Home Secretary on will end up in Home Office records. Uh, and there are lots and lots of mentions of Irish people, places, and incidents. Um, and a lot of the Home Office records are extremely well catalogued, which is also a plus. Probate records, something you might not immediately think of, because although Ireland had its own probate system, and although uh, it did have a little misfortune involving fire, you do find a lot of Irish probate material in our national archives. People who had an interest in both uh, parts of the country might well end up in uh, having a PCC will, which are the ones that we have uh, in the national archives. There are also some records relating to migration. By migration, I mean migration from the United Kingdom, which, as you remember, included Ireland for much of its history, Records of migration from the United Kingdom um, outwards. So you will find your Irish ancestors in all sorts of records uh, relating to them going to Australia, sometimes of their own volition, sometimes not, uh, and also to um, any other place they could get on a boat and go to. Then there are the specifically Irish records. And these are the things that typically have uh, Irish in the title. First of all, the records of the Royal Irish Constabulary. This is one of only two police forces uh, which has its records in the National Archives. Most police records belong to a local archive of some kind, um, but the, the Royal Irish Constabulary and also the Metropolitan Police were national records of a sort and come under uh, the National Archives. 
There is also a wonderful thing called the Irish Reproductive Loan Fund. These are records uh, which date from the mid-19th century, and they have lots and lots of names in them and lots and lots of places in them. Not a huge amount of detail, but quite a lot to be going on with. Uh, and the good news is that some of those records have been digitized and indexed. There is also something called the Irish Sailors and Soldiers Land Trust. This is one of a number of records we have which relate to the early 20th century. There was an awful lot going on in Ireland in the early 20th century, which I'm sure some of you may be aware. And once all the fuss was over with the uprising and the Civil War and eventually independence for much of Ireland, there was an awful lot of admin involved in uh, sorting out the two countries, disestablishing the civil service, getting everybody to where they should be or to where they wanted to be. And the Irish Sailors and Soldiers Land Trust is one of those. There's also a wonderful set of records called the Dublin Castle Records. And these essentially deal with the British administration of Ireland. And these go back for centuries, although most of the really interesting stuff is 19th and early 20th century. And there is a huge amount of material in there. Start with the easy things, the records that you can get online. It's always a good place to start. And these are on various National Archives websites. Documents online, which you can link to from the main National Archives website, which for those of you who don't know, www.nationalarchives.gov.uk. From that, you can get to all of these other things. Documents Online was first known for the PCC, Prerogative Court of Canterbury Wills, but it has a lot of other content in it now. A number of the items in there, as you'll see, have got a lot of Irish interest. There is also a very nice website called Moving Here. Now, this is not really strictly a genealogy website, but it's a very good place to go to for background information. Moving here has actually got four sections to it, four migrant communities. They are from South Asia, there's the Jewish community, there's the West Indies, and there is also the Irish community. And a huge amount of material is on there. It's background material. It's filling in the gaps. There's some illustrations. There are bits of Irish newspapers on there. It's really good for getting the picture, for getting the context of the circumstances that caused your Irish ancestors to come across to mainland Britain and what they did when they got here. Also, a range of records uh, which come under the heading of licensed internet associateships. The short version of this, these are things like Ancestry, where a company, such as Ancestry, is digitizing and indexing some National Archives records, and they get to link to our site, and they have what we call co-branding. And Ancestry, at the moment, has the census records, which might be your first indication that you've got Irish ancestors when you get that really helpful Born Ireland column. But they're also beginning to put on military records. As you will discover, if you don't know already, lots of Irish in the military. Another one of our associates is Find My Past. The website, again, you can link to it from the National Archives one, is Ancestors on Board, which is the outbound passenger lists. These are British people who include a lot of people who are Irish or who are going from Irish ports to all sorts of places around the world. One of the letter-used um, resources and documents online Prisoners' photographs from Wandsworth Jail. And these two desperate-looking characters are called Mary Pierce, who was uh, jailed for cheating. 
and Ellen Devine for larceny, both born Dublin. Again, this is something that you can search by birthplace, you can search it by name. That's how I found these two unfortunate-looking females with photographs. Something else that's on documents online, which I think is probably rather underused because everybody thinks about, oh, First World War, army, and they're aware that a lot of the documents haven't survived. Well, if you had someone who was in the Navy during the First World War, like my grandfather, who is, I think, the only Glaswegian who has no Irish ancestry, so I haven't got him here, I've got somebody else. There are lots of Irishmen in the Navy, just as there were in the Army. And this is just an example of what one of these looks like. This is a man called Thomas Armstrong from Kilkenny in Ireland. It gives his date of birth, which may or may not be accurate, but it also gives his description. He was five foot six, light hair, blue eyes, fair complexion, and had no wounds, scars, or marks. It's quite unusual. Sailors usually have tattoos. But you've got a whole service history there of an Irishman. Even better than those, and there aren't so many of them, but the records are fantastic, the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, 1917 to 1920. Some of these records are pages and pages and pages long. If it's a married woman, you'll get her maiden name. This one's quite interesting. She, she gives her, her mother as her next of kin, even though she is a married woman. Somehow, um, her mammy's always her mammy, I suppose. But you get tremendous files. You get all the medical details. And really, sometimes they go into more detail than you'd really ideally like to read. And like the uh, Navy records we just saw, you get a description. No photographs, unfortunately. But there are descriptions. You get details of education. When I said a description, I mean the physical description. You get the sizes of every garment that the female was issued with. They're absolutely amazing. Small in number, but uh, in quality, absolutely wonderful. Also in documents online, again, First World War, the Royal Naval Division. Now, these were naval reservists, but who they didn't have enough ships for, I suppose. You can keep recruiting for the army with more or less no limit. But for the Navy, you have to have ships to put them on. And the Royal Naval Division were reservists who, who served on land, I think with the concession that they could have beards, which soldiers couldn't. And this is one of the records here from someone called Michael Patrick Murphy, whom I strongly suspect of being Irish. Doesn't actually give his birthplace, although there is a space for it on the card. But you've got his, uh, his date of birth and his date of entry, his address. Now, his address at the time happened to be in Plymouth. Religion was Roman Catholic. He couldn't swim, uh, and his civil employment was a photographer. But it also gives details of his father. Although we lack a birthplace here, his father lived in Ireland, which I think is a fairly strong indication that you might, if you were looking for this man's birth, you might well find it in Ireland. Uh, and again, you get no photographs, but a description. Five foot five, chest measurement, dark complexion, black hair, and light blue eyes. Quite striking, really. I mentioned ancestry in the First World War pension records. The ones that are online so far are what are called the unburnt documents. These are the ones that were not damaged by enemy action during World War II. And so far, you've only got surnames starting with A and B. But the rest will be along eventually. And if any of you have ever looked at these, you'll know that they can be very, very detailed indeed. Sometimes they're only about four pages. Sometimes they run to quite a bit more than that. And you get a good lot of detail about the serviceman himself. And also, if he had a father or brother who was also in the service, 
uh, you will usually get a mention of them and any wife or children he may have. So, again, not a, a large number of them because uh, the, the series of unburnt documents is only a fraction of all the documents that were ever compiled. But still, if your ancestor's in there, that's 100% success rate. That's good enough. Ancestors on board I also mentioned, the outward passenger lists. Now, the coverage dates for these are 1890 to 1960, although at the moment they only cover 1890 to 1919. And they're from UK ports, including Irish ones. And you can search these not just by name, but you can also search by destination and by uh, ports that they're leaving from. I often find that passenger lists can be a little bit disappointing because, as a general rule, the country that somebody's going to is going to be a lot more interested in them than the country that they're leaving. But all the same, they still have their value. And although they're not always in exactly the same format, they're broadly similar. And this is roughly what they look like. On the Ancestors on Board site, you do get a transcription of the entry relating to the person you've been searching for. And it will also show others in the same family who are traveling together and it links to the actual passenger list paid. But if you've ever seen the originals of these documents, in the first place, they are absolutely huge. And in the second place, a lot of them are carbon copies, and they look like they've been written on giant-sized Rizzler papers. So you can understand the problems of scanning them. They vary a bit in format, although they will all look broadly like that. This particular one, the British are divided into English, Scottish, Welsh, uh, and Irish which is quite good because sometimes the poor Welsh just get lumped in with the English and not even mentioned. Incidentally, these ones that I mentioned, the ones on ancestry, the, those military records and the census that I didn't really mention, and the passenger lists, and also all the things I showed you on documents online, although there is a charge for downloading those if you're doing it from home, if you're on site here at the Family Records Centre or at the National Archives at Kew, you can download them and it's absolutely free. The only thing you'll be charged for any printouts that you have. Now I want to say a bit more about army records generally, and here we're departing from the things that are online. This is uh, the point to which you have to do real research, you can't just do it on a computer, you have to go to a place and look at a thing. I've already mentioned that a lot of uh, soldiers in the British Army were from Ireland, or at least had Irish birthplaces, and they weren't all in Irish regiments. They would join a regiment that just happened to be wherever they were when they wanted to join the army. And the British Army regiments were constantly moving around. So if your ancestor joined a regiment in Belfast or in Dublin or in Cork, if it happened to be an English or a Scottish regiment that was there, that's what he would join. I have a, not strictly an ancestor, he's the first husband of a female ancestor, that he was from Ireland. I think he was from County Clare, but I'm not certain. But the regiment that he happened to be in was the 3rd Regiment of Foot, which is the East Kent Regiment, the Buffs, for no particular reason, except I can only assume that whenever he joined, they must have been the regiment in town. If you want more detail on army research, the best place to start is to go onto the National Archives website and under the research category, find the research guides and read them, download them, print them out. They're free, and you get a lot of information in there that you'd pay good money for elsewhere. So start with that, and though they won't specifically say that they're about Irishmen, if it's about the army, it'll have Irishmen in it somewhere. So that's a good place to start. 
Now, I've already mentioned that, unfortunately, a lot of World War I records were destroyed or damaged during World War II. But then if you weren't a born optimist, you wouldn't be doing family history in the first place, would you? Especially not Irish family history. The picture there that you can see is the Royal Irish Fusiliers at Gallipoli. So it wasn't just uh, Australians and Kiwis. There were some other people there. Now, the Irish Army was a separate establishment, but the Act of Union, when Ireland became part of the United Kingdom, was 1801. And the Irish army had been separate and still had a separate establishment that the records relating to the Irish establishment of the army are in the series WO35. This just gives you a few examples of some of the records that are of particular Irish interest. But as I said, anything that relates to the army will have some Irish people in it. We've got muster rolls of the Irish militia from 1793 to 1876. Those from WO13. And there are some courts martial in the early 19th century in some pieces in WO71. And uh, Kilmainham Hospital records, 1704 to 1922. Kilmainham was the Irish equivalent of the Chelsea Royal Hospital. And the pensioners were not necessarily resident in the hospital. If they were, they were in pensioners. But the vast majority of army pensioners were out pensioners, either from Kilmainham or Chelsea. The Chelsea records are in WO22, and of course your Irish ancestor who was in the army might have been in the Kilmainham records, or he might be in the Chelsea ones, yours to discover. Now I want to use the catalogue and just show you how you can find some of it. Without going into a lot of detail about the military records, the earlier ones, and this is ordinary soldiers, this is not officers, Roughly speaking, those who left the army, who came out to a pension from about 1760 up to the 1850s, there is a fairly good chance that you will find them indexed by name in the catalogue. And here I get to indulge myself, and it's one of the rare occasions when I actually get to put one of my own ancestors up on the screen. His surname was Charlton, which sometimes has an E in it and sometimes doesn't, so I've, I've covered both bases here. But I'm looking in the series W0121, and I'm kind of cheating because I know that's where he is. But if I wasn't sure, I could have just put WO. And the results that I get gave me a list of all the Charltons, and I found my man because I knew where he was from, because he was in one of those extremely rare censuses that doesn't say born Ireland. It gave not only the county, but the parish. So sometimes when you're doing Irish ancestry, you have some luck. And that's just his uh, service record or a part of it. The index is online, and if you find an entry on it, the records themselves are on film. So if you're doing this at Kew, you look on the computer, find your entry, go and get some film out of uh, the drawer, put it on a machine, and there you go. And there is my William Charlton uh, from a, a parish called Killies Hall or Killies Hill. Um, it's got about as many different spellings as it has occurrences in the records, so I'm saying nothing. They're not as detailed as some of the later ones, but there is enough on there to tell me that he was 5 foot 11 inches in height, which is a lot taller than I was expecting. He had black hair and dark eyes and a fresh complexion and was probably a fairly distinctive-looking chap because the reason he was invalid, pensioned out of the army was because he had a gunshot wound to the jaw at a battle in the Peninsular War. So that's, to date, my most distinguished ancestor. I'm claiming him as a war hero. Also, from other records, some of which I've followed up, I have found, not only do I know his parish of birth, but from the muster rolls, I know his exact date of birth, which is not bad for an Irishman born in the 1780s. So it just shows you it pays to keep trying. The fact that it only took me about 15 years to find him is neither here nor there. 
Now, I mentioned the Home Office earlier on and that they are very well catalogued. Huge numbers of records, some of which have got names in, some of which haven't. There's a lot of um, correspondence in HO45, which is very well catalogued. Lots about the destitute Irish arriving in Liverpool, really starting from in the 1840s to the 1860s. 1840s, of course, was the time of the, the famine, but it wasn't the only rough period in Irish history when people were leaving. There are also records relating to removals of Irish paupers, 1861 to 62, and there are lots of criminal cases. Uh, and these are very well catalogued indeed. You can search by name, you can search by the court, or you can search by the crime, depending on how much you want to find out. Your ancestor might have been a victim, might not have been a perpetrator, you never know. And it also includes reports on criminal behaviour. So this is just some suggestions that you might want to go away and play with the catalogue and see what you can find. One particularly good series in Home Office is in HO100 there, and these are reports of outrages, roughly covering the period 1836 to 1840. This is just before the famine really bit, but it was still, times were very hard. And the reports of outrages, of which there are literally thousands, are extremely detailed. They may or may not mirror a set of records that are actually in the National Archives in Dublin. We've just started a project to try and establish whether or not this is the case, whether we've got exactly the same records just written on two different bits of paper or whether we've got complementary records that cover slightly different periods. But it's in its early stages, so no conclusions yet. But an example, and this is one from Antrim, uh, on the evening of the 22nd of August, as James White, driver of the postcar, was leaving Ballycastle, Alexander Brown stopped the horse and forcibly took possession of a seat. On White removing him, he followed with two men of the name of McAllister, pulled him down off his car and struck him several times uh, when the townspeople interfered and took him away. Summonses have been issued against the parties. Uh, and that, that's about the average length of a description. So there are thousands and thousands of these things. And each one has got a date and a place and the names of certainly of the victims and sometimes of the perpetrators if they were caught. So there's a lot of people named in there and a nice lot of detail. I think that would be a wonderful set of records to digitize and index. There are also, referring back to the criminal cases I mentioned, I've got the document reference on there, but suffice to say it's from HO45. There are convicts transported to Western Australia in 1857 in this particular one. Big list of names there. And uh, you get the name of the convict uh, and also their particular crime. And you can search these in the catalogue by name, by court, by crime or by sentence. And as well as the lists of, of the actual convicts being sent, there are some documents, again in the same series, which have got reports on the convicts' behaviour while they were on board ship. Okay, far be it from me to suggest that there are criminal tendencies in the Irish. A lot of Irish were in the police, uh, and I mentioned the Royal Irish Constabulary, but there were quite a number of Irishmen in the Metropolitan Police, not just New York where Irish people went to join the police, you know. Some of them came to England as well. Also, a lot of them went to Glasgow, but we haven't got those records here. And this is one, this particular example with that wonderful picture and uh, an example of the personal service record there. This is actually from uh, the Moving Here website that I mentioned earlier on. This is Superintendent Christopher McHugo who rose through the ranks and this is a description of him as he's leaving to pension. 
His age on resignation was 62. He'd served the force for over 40 years. And you get the amount of his pension there. And a description, five foot nine and a half, grey hair. I'm not surprised after 40 years in the force. At least he had some left, apparently. Uh, and grey eyes and fresh complexion. Metropolitan Police records, the service uh, that I have looked at, are extremely good. I also mentioned earlier the Coast Guards as one of the other services. Now, this was founded in 1822, and there are registers of nominations for officers and men in series ADM 175, and this includes Ireland. There are all sorts of other records with establishment and record books, pensions, discharge registers. Again, you can go onto the website and look at research guides on Coast Guards generally if you found somebody who is a Coast Guard and appears to be Irish. And the other thing that they should flag up for you is that someone was in the Coast Guards, there's a fairly good chance that they may previously have been in the Royal Navy. So you could then go and search to see if you can find a service record. Customs and excise, very similar. There was a separate Irish establishment from 1807 to 1823. Some records are in these cust classes, 20 and 39. Excise, which is slightly different. Customs is stuff that's coming into the country. Excise is things like whiskey that are having taxes put on them. But the records are often in the same places. And the Irish Revenue Police, again, similar. And uh, establishment lists of inland revenue staff, 1869 to 1920. They're in inland revenue records. Customs and Excise was a, a service that the government made a particular point of moving people around frequently so as they didn't get too matey with the locals. So you will find people all over the place. Right, those are some records which are general records but happen to include a lot of Irish, mainly Irish men, but some Irish women. But now we've got some specifically Irish records in the National Archives. I mentioned the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Irish Reproductive Loan Fund, Soldiers and Sailors Land Trust, Dublin Castle Records. Now, I don't have time to go into all of these in great detail, but just a little bit. First of all, the Royal Irish Constabulary Records of Service. This is the sort of information you'll get in it. You get the man's name, age, height, religious affiliation, his native country, his trade or calling before he joined, his marital status, and the native country of his wife, Nothing fancy like her name or anything, but you'll get where she comes from. Date of appointment, counties where he served, length of service, and date of death or retirement. And there are also pension records. But if you find somebody who is in the RIC, uh, you should be able to find out quite a lot about them. Now, the Dublin Castle records, I like these. These are the records of the British administration in Ireland, as I've already said. Although they cover quite a long period, a lot of them relate to civil and military efforts against nationalist organisations, which really start in earnest in the 19th century. And there are some wonderful examples. On the whole, not indexed, not copied in any form, but well worth the effort of going and looking at. We've got a book of prisoners' letters, 1868, that they were trying to smuggle out of Kilmainham Jail. Get smallish series, but wonderful, Registers of Suspects, 1880 to 1898, including one volume which are exclusively Americans or Irish Americans suspected of Fenian activities. There are some wonderful passport applications from 1921. Again, this is at the time of independence. 
and registers of claims to compensation. There was an awful lot to be compensated for. People were claiming against the British government. They were claiming against the new Irish Republican government. And general claims against people who belonged to no government, but the government ought to pay up. Lots of people who'd had suffered loss of property or even life at the hands of the IRA and all sorts of other insurrectionists. And this is one of the prisoners' letters, headed Information as to Fenian Designs in 1868. Now, this was a letter which, it says in the margin there, a copy letter from convict J.C. O'Loughlin, Kilmainham Jail, found with the prisoner J.J. Gahan. And the covering letter for this, or the covering note for this letter, says, Dear Jem, I give you the needle to sew these up carefully in some secure part of your clothes. When you get out, put them in separate envelopes and show them to no one whatever. Well, except presumably the person they're addressed to, I suppose. Take care that the writing is not erased. May all that is good and true guard bid you farewell till we meet, which will be soon, Kilmainham Jail. Well, it obviously wasn't that successful because he obviously got intercepted, otherwise it wouldn't have been in a British government document. On the next page of the same book, you've then got a description of the parties mentioned. And James Gahan, the, the man who was supposed to be smuggling it out, although not very efficiently, is a low-sized young man, about five foot four in height, small features, very light black moustache. I assume that means wispy, because I don't think there is such a thing as light black. Teeth scattered in front, wears a brown overcoat with a velvet collar, has dark hair, black felt hat with ivory buckle on the side. No, I was wrong, he's a leprechaun. And it goes on to describe some other desperate characters. The registers of suspects, of which there are four volumes, listed alphabetically, some of them with photographs. Um, and this, this character is called Kelly. And the uh, document that goes with that is, says that he's reported by police to hold a high position in the IRA uh, and has some influence in County Galway, etc., etc. A bit later, Kelly admits that he is a secret society man, uh, but states that he, he does not favour the dynamite policy, and so on. One of the other suspects, with, uh, which also has a photograph, is actually the, the John O'Loughlin, whom I'm guessing must be the man who wrote the letter that his friend failed to smuggle out for him. Passport applications. These are good. These are people trying to leave Ireland, again, um, on the eve of, or at the point of independence. Not huge numbers of these. And they're sorted into bundles according to the categories, and the categories are quite good. Some of them are um, applications which are uh, believed to have been stolen. So if you think identity theft is something new, think again. And there are also ones, persons whose loyalty may be suspect, and, and so on. And one or two other categories, which I think I can best illustrate by showing you a couple of the applications. Now, this man here that you can see, his name is Carr, and it says, uh, the report on this says, I beg to report that Carr does not contribute anything towards the support of his wife. If granted a passport, I'm of the opinion that there is a likelihood of her becoming a charge on the rates. And in fact, there is a letter which says, I beg to report that Mrs. Carr objects to her husband being given a passport to proceed abroad. She was not aware that he was endeavouring to emigrate. So they were right. Now, some of these have photographs and some don't. But the ones without photographs may still have quite detailed descriptions, height, colouring, and so forth. In fact, one of them gives a man 24 years and single, farmer's son, 5 feet 8 inches, 
forehead broad, eyes blue, nose short, mouth small, chin round, hair fair, complexion fair, and face long. But some of the other categories are rather good. Uh, they seem to sort into people that um, mainly were going to the USA. Um, and there's one here from somebody. And I've looked at this as often as I can, and I can't make his name say anything other than Shady O'Malley. It said, above named as an applicant for passport to the USA. There's a warrant against him for unlawful assembly, i.e. illegal drilling. Apart from this one offence, nothing is known against him. He absconded when the warrant was issued. The question now is, should he be granted his passport or should an escort be sent from somewhere that I can't read to Birkenhead to bring him back? And they decide that on balance, that he's only a minor troublemaker, so give him a passport and get rid of him. That seems to be the best thing. People who are more sort of serious, full-on troublemakers, they don't necessarily want to go to America and stir up trouble. It, it's interesting, the, uh, you know, the views, the, the passport applications with the photographs and the descriptions are quite interesting and people's reasons. But the official notes uh, as to how they should be dealt with are absolutely priceless. I wish there were more of these things because they're so good. Now, there's another wonderful set of records, again, indexed by name in the catalogue called the Irish Grants Committee, or sometimes the Irish Distress Committee. It changed its name. And this is precisely one of those organizations that was trying to compensate people who had suffered as a result of the troubles in one way or another. I picked this particular example the first time I did this for a man called John Scanlon for no better reason than I know somebody who's called John Scanlon. But it's actually quite a good example. These vary an awful lot. John Scanlon was obviously playing the inflated insurance claim game, as were a lot of other people. Although I have to say that some of the other applications were absolutely heartrending and tragic. People saying, my, uh, my three sons were shot by the IRA, my wife's had a nervous breakdown, and my house has been burned down. Please give me some money, and you can't but sympathize. People like John Scanlon, though, he is claiming for a Ford motor car, my property was forcefully taken from me by masked men on the 7th of November, 1921. And in the rest of his application, he goes on to say that he needed this car because his wife's a school teacher and he used it to take her to work in the next village. When the car was taken, he had to find some other way, so he bought her a bicycle. But she found the bicycling rather hard work for this journey. So he then bought uh, a motorcycle and sidecar so that he could uh, take her in said sidecar. And then at the end of this, he's claiming for the car, he's claiming for the bike, and he's claiming for the motorcycle and sidecar. Though the authorities not unreasonably point out that he is still in possession of the bike and the motorcycle and sidecar. And anyway, as far as they can tell, the value of said items is quite a bit less than um, he was actually claiming. And on the next slide, he says this is what his income is. He, he was, he's a former uh, Royal Irish Constabulary man, so something you could follow up if he was yours. Pension, £44 per year. Wife's salary from Board of Education, £237, six shillings. With this, I have to support five children, one of whom has been delicate and nervous um, and under doctor's care for a year due to a raid on my house in June 1922, fair enough. I also have to keep a servant. The upshot of this was, I think he got about half of what he was claiming for. Uh, and looking at these claims as a whole, that seems to have been about the going rate. Though I did see one unfortunate man who was about as loyal as you can get, but unfortunately had a name which was very similar 
to a known Fenian IRA sympathiser, and he had to get all sorts of letters from clergymen to say, no, no, I really am an honest man. I haven't got a balaclava or a gun or anything. Right, the Irish Reproductive Loan Fund. This is going right back in time. These, these are going back to the mid-19th century, and they are small sums that were advanced to um, you know, good, honest Irishmen just to make, um, to invest a bit in their land, the sort of seed corn loans. And these were arranged by local associations. They don't cover the whole of Ireland. And that's just an example of the of one kind of document from it. This particular one comes from uh, moving here. And there are lots of them digitized and indexed there which used to be extremely difficult to use, but now there is a smart way of getting into them, which I shall show you in a minute. This is uh, one of the bits that isn't digitized, but it's just an example. You've got someone there called uh, Richard Collins. As far as I'm aware, no relation, but then I've no way of knowing because I've been spectacularly unsuccessful tracing my Irish Collins ancestors. But it gives his name and his residence and the two neighbors, friends, relatives who stand guarantor. Rather like the, record, the records of outrages, you've got lots and lots of names of people in relating to places and particular dates. This is what the Moving Here website looks like. And it wasn't, as I said, designed for doing genealogical research. So all the records that are digitized on there were not designed for being searched by name. So although it could be done, it used to be a terrible nuisance. However... We now have a wonderful thing on the National Archives website, which is called Global Search. And Global Search means you can put in a search term, and it will search not only across the National Archives website, it will search our catalogue. It will search a whole lot of other people's catalogues as well, on A2A and National Register of Archives, and this, that, and the other, including moving here. Unfortunately, there isn't, as you can see on the front of the website, a big sign that says global search here. It's awfully subtle. However, that's where it is on the website. On the top right-hand corner, you've got a nice discreet little box with a search button next to it. And underneath that, it says advanced search. And if you go in there, if you go to advanced search, you can put in whatever search term you like. It's a very good search engine. And you can restrict your search to uh, a particular database in which case you could go to moving here and you could put in the name of a county or the name of a townland or a parish and a person's name. Okay, back to things which are not digitized uh, in any way. You get terribly preoccupied with words and facts and documents, and that's a good thing most of the time, but we do have visual records. And in copy one, there are lots and lots of pictures, lots of photographs. The actual documents themselves, the pictures, you would have to go to queue and order them and have a look at them, but they're extremely well catalogued. And that's just a nice photograph of inhabitants of an Irish village, 1888. And one of my very favorite things, maps. This particular map is actually on the website, but if you just put in, in the catalog search, map and the name of any Irish county or any Irish place, you will be amazed. We have a fantastic collection of maps. This particular collection, which is 16th century, is part of a collection of maps for, for the province of Munster, except for County Clare for some reason, and it shows place names, rivers, forests, and towns. You can get an idea of what some of these things look like by actually looking on the image library on the National Archives catalogue. 
But using the catalogue itself, you will find that there are a lot more maps than are actually visible on the website that you could go and order, and they look wonderful. Now, that's about searching the National Archives in England. But when I mention global search, one of the things I skirted over is that you can also use that facility to search other archives. Now, you can do this through global search, or you can do it via the uh, search the archives option. And I chose this as quite a nice example of how you can use the National Archives catalogue to identify records which are not in the National Archives but relate to whatever subject you're interested in. Now, in this particular case, I've gone to the National Register of Archives, and that's the part of the National Archives which has overview of records that are not held in the National Archives but which are in record offices all over the UK, and in some cases abroad. Essentially, they are records of British interest, and by British that means you used to be United Kingdom. And in this case, I have just put in, um, under the place search, I have just put in Dublin to see what comes out. Not surprisingly, I get quite a lot of results, and you can only see just the first few there in, in alphabetical order. But there are 228 results for Dublin. Uh, there are records for the Abbey Theatre, Dublin. There's uh, records of a, a company called James Adam and Son, auctioneers and valuers in Dublin, and so on and so on. And down the bottom there, there's an entry for the Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners, Dublin Managing Committee. Well, if you had an ancestor, and it doesn't give a date, so you just have to explore, um, if you have an ancestor who was a trade unionist and a carpenter and or joiner in Dublin, this might be worth following up. Now, you might think that records relating to the Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners in Dublin might be in Dublin. You'd be wrong. They are in the Modern Records Centre in the University of Warwick because they're trade union records, which just makes the point rather well that things aren't always where you expect them to be. Irish records, I think I've demonstrated we have a lot of Irish records in the National Archives in England, but better than that, we can point you in the direction of records of Irish interest, which are in other places altogether, which aren't in Ireland, and they're not in the National Archives, they're somewhere else. I think there's plenty there to keep you amused for the next few years. So thank you for listening, and uh, I hope it's, some of you are inspired to go off and make some staggeringly good discoveries. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.